So welcome back to another episode of the Python People podcast, the home of global technology leaders to share insights with the tech community. And uh, a warm welcome to this week's guest, uh, Dr. Akinola uh, Akinyemi, uh, or Akin, as is affectionately known to his, uh, his, his good friends. Um, to Akin, you are, in my personal opinion, a very inspiring data leader. You know, you're currently head of data science for um, IG Group, which is obviously a FTSE 250 organization. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into uh, a bit about your role there and you know, the really interesting work that you're you're doing in a while. Um, but but let's start with with you. Um, you know, you've obviously I think had a very interesting route uh, into the world of data science leadership um, because over the years you've performed different roles, you know, kind of a test engineer, research engineer, um, image analysis scientist, and then sort of moving into marketing analytics and, and that kind of space. So it'd be really great, you know, just sort of hear your journey of how you got into data science and, and sort of into the position you're in. Uh, so yeah, talk us through, where did it where did it all begin for you and uh, in your journey into, into tech and data? Oh, thanks, Guy. I really appreciate, really appreciate the accolades there. Um, I think IG considers itself FTSE 115. But, uh, you know, oh, right. okay, well, I'll take that. <laughs> that's, that's what you said that's on LinkedIn, so they need to update LinkedIn. <laughs> no index has been made for, for, for that just yet. You're either in the hundreds or the 250s. Um, so it's an interesting question. So I, um, before, before going into university, I actually wanted to be a medical doctor, uh, just like my dad. And I broke my wrist one time, got into A&E, and saw so much blood. I was like, no, this is definitely not for me. Um, <laughs> And so I think my mom at the time was saying, oh, you know, that there's this whole blooming area called like biomedical engineering because you, you do like engineering and maybe this day where those two things will meet. So, you know, might as well just, you know, stick with the engineering interests. And so I went into uni, studied electronics engineering uh, with business studies um, in, in Glasgow. And you kind of like I veered towards like sort of the power engineering specialty in my first three years. Um, in fact, worked for E.ON for a bit there as a sort of like power academy scholar. And then in my final year, I got into image processing and signal processing as like, you know, really passionate Did my final year project in that. And when I was graduating, my advice supervisor at the time told me, you know, I think you're probably best suited to the signal processing stuff. Again, somebody else kind of, giving me a giving me a steer uh but it was really interesting because like images were real you know power is also real but like images were were quite fun like processing that Mm. and so that's why i got into um i I turned down a full-time job of graduate opportunity with eon and took an internship with freescale semiconductor um as a sort of test engineer working on uh, microcontrollers for the automotive industry so it was a lot of signal processing now, while I was doing that, it was a little bit of a risk, but while I was doing that, came across the engineering doctorate, which was in image analysis for computer vision. And at the time, it just seemed like, wow, this is like pretty cool. Like it's kind of in my interest of something like you know, a bit of software that I can see. So I applied for it, got the got the role, and um, you know, the sort of I guess that, that began began my journey into the sort of machine learning space. So it was a typical kind of, I guess, machine learning researcher. That's what they call that. Well, today, you know, it was pre the, the scikit-learns and the open source. I mean, those things were probably there, but for a Japanese company, they wanted everything proprietary. So we had right. to build 
a lot of these expectation maximization algorithms, you know, optimization algorithms, decision trees, we build them from scratch. So it required strong, strong, strong in-depth understanding of what went into those uh, algorithms, but also good software skills to be able to make them, you know, um, actually run at scale. But thankfully, we had good software engineers, some of the best I've ever worked with, like next week, actually turning those things into production. And that's what you call a machine learning engineer today, to be honest. But, you know, those things didn't exist. Those roles didn't exist then. So I did that for four years and then went into the delivery side of the research for another three years because I thought it's quite nice to get offered a job from the same company that sponsored your doctorate. And what that really helped me to do is kind of, I always had a passion for understanding how the end product was being used. And so we were building tools that helped make radiologists and cardiologists' lives easier. So can they detect stenosis in the heart quicker than they would normally do using uh, machine learning to identify these stenoses in the, like in the cardiac scan or, or remove the tissues of interest and focus on where they want to see kind of augmenting their workflows. So it was really great to see that aspect of it and tie it to why I was doing what I was doing. So it got to the point where I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to be a cardiologist or whatever, but I figured out I'm actually providing solutions to those guys. So why don't I try this in a different area? And so I went into um, General Electric as a, you know, call it algorithm software engineer. Uh, but it was, again, it was kind of that ML engineer type uh, thing because you really strong need to be a strong software engineer with a good understanding of data science. And we're, again, doing similar work there, but their business was pipelines inspections. And so they had reams and reams of data collected every two millimeters along a hundred kilometer pipeline. And so some poor analyst has to go through all of that and find out where cracks were. And, you know, I think and it was a very booming business, like turning over like a quarter of a billion a year still. But, you know, the time it took to inspect the pipeline was around 60 days to turn around and they had no shortage of incoming work. So it made sense that if you could speed up that time, you know, they could actually capture more business which is a lot of fun. And so, hey, let's enter sort of machine learning, but it was a complex application of machine learning. Because if you if you have a sort of false negative, i.e. missing a crack or a defect, and that pipeline explodes, you could actually get arrested. Uh, you know, there's a liability in there. Now, if, if you identified a false positive and the operator had to go dig up that spool, which kind of like shuts down operations, costing them around two million pounds a day. Okay. And they open it and there was no defect in there. You're probably going to lose business because, you know, you're just wasting the money. So it was quite a nice way to sort of balance that error analysis. Now, I did that for a bit and I really wanted to move to London uh, somewhere else. And, and so like I kind of thought, what am I going to do next? And I started looking at jobs and um, applying for like a machine learning researcher role. Now, the interview was interesting because the people at the interview kind of told, asked me like, have you considered applying for a job as a data scientist? It's like, why? It's like, because you haven't actually, a machine learning researcher is inventing new algorithms, like writing the new deep learning framework. So, so you haven't actually done that in your, but you've been successful at using those methods to solve problems. And that's actually what, you know, data scientists do. So 
here's a tip for you. And I was like, you know what? Let me go check Coursera. And I read up McKinsey had this article of data science, the sexiest job of the 20, 21st century at the time. And I was like, whoa, this is, <clears throat> this is that just could actually be really cool. And I sat in my bed and I did some courses, the analytics edge, which was a 12 week course on edX at the time. And it was like, Module by module, like this is exactly what I've been doing for the last seven years, <laughs> except that they're giving me tools in R and Python that actually, you know, pretty much make the, the work easier. Mm. Holy crap. So I, you know, picked up some big data spark skills from a course as well. So I was like, went into study mode and then started applying for data science jobs. And every time I interviewed for data scientist role, the company, the interviewer always asked me, how do you feel about setting up a team? This happened three in three different interviews. I'm like, that's interesting. And so when I applied for the job at IG, um, I applied for an analytics engineer role, got my contract the next day as a technical team lead to, to, run, to run the team. And, and so began my sort of journey into the sort of marketing, uh, marketing data science space. Fair enough. Fantastic. That's a really interesting story, actually. And it's, I guess it's a really good point because, you know, you think about data science as a, you know, some new sexy terminology. Um, but actually, there's a lot of people out there that have had that very kind of analytical mindset and have been solving big problems, you know, in, in an empirical way using data. You know, for, I mean, statistics, I guess, that's been around, obviously, it applied in real world since kind of the 70s, you know, and um, computer programming along with it. And obviously there's more, these people that have probably been doing the role like yourself actually in, in many ways, but not really aware of that data science title and then sort of like say, get drawn to it and realize that's the kind of sweet spot of, of, of where they want to go to. But it seems really interesting in your your background, one of the sort of core threads I was just thinking when you were sort of talking and describing everything was you seem to be drawn to solving pretty big problems. Is that fair to say? Kind of quite quite critical problems, you know, obviously in the health tech space, huge problem with, with a big impact when you when you've got the right solution there. And obviously when you were talking about your, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the pipeline and, you know, those kind of problems obviously have big impacts as well. And I guess you know, further in with IG as well, you know, it's kind of very business critical kind of stuff that, um, you know, big, big problems to solve. So is the nature of the, obviously different, challenges but is the nature of the problem something you consider when you when you look to take on a role yeah I, I think i think if i look at my drivers then there's a definite like impact motive there um and and it's it's sort of the ability to shape to the ability to actually build something that is used and actually um has an impact is is quite uh, quite motivating for me mm. yeah absolutely yeah and I guess a lot of companies at the moment are, you know, some are a little bit further down the road of their data science journey than others. And, and you know, quite a few still that we, we speak to and consult with and, and partner with are really that sort of fledgling steps of their, their data science journey and sort of forming that function. And, you know, one of the, the key things that's at the forefront of a lot of data, you know, heads of data science that we speak to is like, how, how do we how do we show the value? You know, we kind of believe in what data science can do and, and we kind of know what it can do for the business, but how do we share that vision with the rest of the business and how do we create that, that value, uh, you know, for the business? So I know that's something from conversations you and I have had in the past that it's something you're particularly passionate about. And um, so it'd be great to understand actually a bit about your, your approach IG and kind of how you do that. I mean, IG clearly is a very, 
you know, revered high profile organization. And um, I'm sure there probably is quite a lot of expectation around, you know, what data science can, can do for the business. But how do you approach it there? How do you how do you ensure the data science function you know, does demonstrate the value you want it to? I think IG has been an interesting um, case for us. And this is sort of, um, I think kind of, like I learned a lot in the journey there uh, that allows me to sort of speak to speak to this from my own sort of perspective, I guess. And also having spoken to other leaders in that space, I can kind of see similarities. <clears throat> so to get value from data, um, someone showed me a nice sort of pyramid where you started off with big data and then on top of that was the analytics and then the sort of you know data science machine learning and then ai at the very top and you know that's then the value starts along that chain so, so what i found was that you know you companies are at different stages in in their journey now some of the biggest gains that i was able to um, pull out from data was actually constructing big data sets that joined the customer's journey across all marketing touch points and build sort of like marketing attribution. And then now the analytics that came out of that allowed us to allow the business to optimize, you know, tens of millions of pounds in marketing and use that to guide their investments. That bigger than, you know, uh, most sort of like than a machine learning algorithm, there's no machine learning in there. It was just a really complex, you know, data set creation problem, but that data set that was created led me to increase my team from a team of me plus two others who were kind of focused on building the data set and one was focused on doing the actual ensuring that you know we built some dashboards out of it we now expanded that team to five to actually get more hands to you know to extract value from that data set and so marketing data science was born we had a good quality nice governed well-documented data set that was powered by spark and then lots of analytics coming off of Tableau from there. Yeah. Okay. You know, and so suddenly companies like, okay, right, this is so so that value allowed us to grow that function. Now, you know, in other areas, we kind of start building scoring models that were helping us to optimize the the call center traffic um, for for sort of new business sales teams, um, you know, prioritizing calls, that sort of stuff. And so it was quite clear, okay, right, that there's some value in there in that optimizer that works well. So we kind of thought a really good way to maximize or, you know, like accelerate the value from the instance was actually to consider the way it's structured in the organization. And I was fortunate enough to get the job of actually running that consolidation, hence the sort of, you know, um, head of data science role, like, you know, subsequently bringing those teams together so that we could genuinely like increase the value that we added to the business. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Interesting. I think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting point you make at the beginning there when you talk about <clears throat> that kind of tool you built and, you know, how there's no kind of necessarily machine learning in there, but, you know, it's a tool that still has created a lot of value. And I think that's interesting to get your take on that. I think that's still, probably a preconception in the market or, or maybe a, a level of, um, you know, kind of naivety, I think, from companies to a degree where they're like, well, hang on a minute, we need to just sprinkle a load of machine learning on this and turn it into something absolutely magical when, when actually very often it's not the solution that's, that's needed for the problem at hand. Um, so kind of picking the right uh, 
picking the right tool, you know, pragmatically or the right approach pragmatically to the uh, to the job at hand. Um, and it's interesting we talked about being able to scale the team from you know two to five because of the value that you you created with that. Um, how do you go about you know how do you best structure a data science team in your opinion and um, you know to to continue to deliver that value are there any particular kind of systems or approaches that you take for for structuring and kind of scaling teams so there's lots of literature in there and i was quite obsessed with that you know with that problem because um for me i, I thought the, the right setup would like you know, maximize value and so we went from a kind of, you know, marketing data science was embedded in marketing. And it actually allowed like really, really good, um, you know, partnership with marketing, building something that was domain, data science that was domain specific in there. <clears throat> but then we had other kind of data science teams or analytics teams or data science teams kind of um, spotted in other verticals in the business. Now, what ended up happening was that we realized that some teams like there was a kind of not really a balanced skill set across the different data team across the different quote-unquote data science teams uh, some kind of had um, you know lots of machine learning engineers or data engineers but no like core so analytical data scientists some had a lot of like you know pure data scientists but no no sort of no more than engineering background that could actually take those things into uh, operation and so you 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 felt like you know there was and so that was one problem second problem was that the business you know some of these areas kind of overlapped you know where does marketing data science and client data science where does this, this work actually stop and so from the business perspective they really couldn't understand who do i go to with a problem that required you know a data science solution and it was quite like unclear to them um, and obviously, as a sort of like business that was kind of growing in the data science capability, having this kind of uh, federated structure, where the structure didn't actually allow you to build the skill or build the discipline as effectively as you would. And so we kind of thought, okay, let's go for, because the level of maturity and the kind of like difference in skills that we've got around, why don't we go for a centralized hub and spoke approach? whereby we put the team together into one um, center of excellence. And, you know, we now have analytics teams that are embedded in different parts of the business. So in marketing, in finance, in the dealing side, in compliance, et cetera. And partner with those guys because they have the business knowledge and they have the statistics and the sort of an analysis knowledge, but maybe lack the specialized you know, machine learning skills and, you know, the sort of advanced that, you know, we can bring to science. But if you create a squad with those people and the business area, then you're able to solve problems in a variety of business areas. Interesting. And, yeah. And Interesting. have enough kind of like um, leverage to be able to grow, you know, and figure out how do we build the skills in the team. So now I, I split the teams into the different disciplines that make up data science. So rather than looking for unicorns, I built a department that was the unicorn. And so I have a business intelligence data analyst teams made up of like data storytellers, um, core data science team made up purely of the sort of predictive analytics heads, and then a machine learning engineering team. And so within within that kind of, you know, um, COE, we can kind of work as an internal consultancy and service 
different areas of the business that way. That really works mm. um, at the moment because the business knows where to come to for problems. Uh, we've actually seen that the value that we've generated to the business has increased. We're able to come up with a shared vision, shared set of objectives, work like that. Will that be the same format three years from now? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, but for now, it works. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach. And, and yeah, I totally, totally get that. It feels very logical. Yeah, that's one of the really interesting things about data science. Obviously, it is this huge umbrella, isn't it? It sits across a lot of different disciplines and, and technologies and techniques. And, you know, every, everybody that enters into the world of data science, there's a little bit of a Venn diagram, I guess, between probably the you know, more classical BI side, maybe a bit of the kind of um analytics the data engineering and the machine learning piece and you know they obviously align to certain pillars more than others or have a particular passion or or just a particular aptitude for for certain areas more than others um so yeah i think that's a really logical approach and it, i think the, the the great thing i like about that is that the business knows where to go to get their problem solved so obviously they 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 clearly buy into that approach as well because they're seeing the value off the, off the back of it um interesting you say that you, you sort of feel it may evolve as as time goes on um how do you feel that that may happen so what i've seen <clears throat> is you know internally um when when we created this structure we had to now decide what was the focus and the data scientist, the focus was machine learning and like advanced, like statistical predictive analytics, that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, we created an MLOps function, STEM engineering team. But as that journey progressed over three years, we had to, you know, we were still at, in the early stages, we were still doing a lot of data engineering pieces. You know, we were doing a lot of, um, we are doing a lot of anal analysis pieces. And stuff. So as time evolved, like the, you know, we grew, we grew a bigger marketing intelligence or marketing analytics function in the business that went up from, you know, a team of two to about 18 people, sucking up a lot of the core analysis work that we used to do. We handed over anything that was not deemed that kind of specialist or we wanted to focus on two more analytics teams. We handed over a lot of like you know, the, the valuable pieces that I thought at the start, which is the big data, you know, thing for marketing attribution, handed that over to data engineering and a lot of other big things like that, kind of allowing us to say right now, what do we focus on, right? And so it's MLOps, so specialists like that. So the growing of these other functions around the business kind of means that, you know, you can start to see that, well, actually that federates or a better approach to analytics is definitely getting stronger as those teams are more capable, one. The rise of, you know, um, no-code um, sort of auto-ML, um, the empowerment of the citizen data science uh, is coming up with companies like Data Robot leading the charge. And these things, right? You know, now you can conceivably see that you can, those analytics teams can do a majority of the simple data science problems with the right tools. Uh, with the right platforms, if you just set up enablement for them, but somebody has to build that enablement, and that's where your COE ten will end up specialising in going forward. I don't think it's a it's a thing that you know that thing would never exist, but you constantly what the what the focus on will be will be changing over time, and yeah. will not necessarily need to expand 
functionality. So, so those kind of trends, I think, are the um, are the stuff that makes me believe that the future will look very different. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you, absolutely. And I think it's a really pragmatic way to look at things to to feel actually, you know, it's an ever evolving space, isn't it? You know, probably exponentially quicker than other areas of technology. So um, to kind of have that mindset of actually. This works for us right here, right now. But as things evolve, we may have to do and adapt and sort of take that iterative approach to how you scale a team. I think it's obviously a great, great quality of a, of a very uh, aware leader. Um, one question around the, the kind of hub and spoke model that you spoke about logically makes absolute sense. How as a, as a leader, when you kind of have a slightly, you know, um, I guess you've got the hub, but maybe working on slightly different focuses or people with slightly different um, angles and, and projects that they're working on. How do you go about creating a, a unifying culture within a team that maybe has slightly different ob- objectives? Um, you know, how do you kind of keep that hub as a you know, data science hub that has that, that culture that you want uh, when they're perhaps one of the spokes? It's very, it's, it's very challenging. I, I think we... I'll focus on the hub because that's what I can control. Uh, the spoke is a lot, it's a lot harder and like maybe that's like that's outside the sort of locus of control here. The hub is challenging in itself because you have a team of teams that tend to focus on their own sort of deliveries. And so what I find, uh, what I found like it good to do at the very start was to kind of come up with like you know, collaboratively come up with a vision, a set of objectives for the wider department one and we all agree that this is what we want to focus on and, and that actually allows us to focus on value and focus on the things that matter that's served us up well up until now but then the people challenges started to kind of surface when you become aware that a team of teams can either really be a meeting or a team um, <clears throat> that distinction is quite subtle like you know they each person maybe reports into me and I that report to the next person, but they're not, they don't necessarily function. That first team doesn't necessarily function as a team. And so you to, to create that change is something I've been working on like really consciously in the last in the last six, you know, six to eight months. It's giving my first team, those that did my data science leadership team tasks to focus on as a team so me being a member of that team rank aside and we're solving problems for the wider department so take your day job aside but we're actually looking at things that propel the department as a whole forward and and that leadership team now becomes a team that's focusing on specific problems that's building that relationship between each of them so it doesn't have to rely on that kind of graph that goes through me but they can kind of work together like that I think um, that sort of proving to, you know, proving to be promising, uh, but it's one that requires a lot of consciousness as, as as a leader that you know I don't get in the way of that collaboration. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, <clears throat> it's interesting. I guess in any any leadership position, it fundamentally all boils down to to people, doesn't it? And and kind of relationships and and how do you most effectively, you know. Um, ensure the job gets done, but still build that culture where people have the opportunity to build those those strong relationships internally. And that's uh, that's the job of a leader, which sometimes is, well, very often not not easy. Um, but uh, but no, it makes, makes total sense and really respect and kind of buy into your, your approach. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the trends then. I guess we talked about how kind of data science is evolving, you know, 
totally agree. The kind of ML operation space is is um, you know uh, very hot potato for a lot of a lot of businesses. But what areas of of data science you know are you most passionate about moving forward? And you know what are the, what are the exciting trends? I guess that you kind of see coming down the pipeline um, that you're really really intrigued with. So I think it's a few things. Um, MLOps for me was like, you know, the best thing since sliced bread um, because it just made sense. And I know that's been kind of like, you know, growing since 2019. And, you know, it's something that I've tried to get a handle on and just recently you know, fin- finally kind of, you know, think that nailed it. But, you know, that's that sort of industrialization of, of data science, like is the thing that, uh, that I'm really excited about. And you've seen like leaders in that space being able to kind of capture, you know, capture value by automating a lot of stuff and creating that kind of best practice for machine learning. I think it's easy to succeed in machine learning by chance and have one or two kind of, you know, booms in there, but to make it a consistent approach, like, you know, that, that is like magical. And so envelopes exciting there. Um, looking at the kind of value, you know, the, the, the chain and sort of producing, let's focus on machine learning for now. Data prep, model building, um, operationalization. I find that actually in the, you know, operationalization space, MLOps has come in to kind of, you know, optimize that space, that, that, that area, which typically maybe would have taken 40% of your time. 20% of the time is actually in the model building. And so AutoML, quite interesting trends there that, mm. you know, you can get started with a nice baseline model using AutoML and like, you know, if you're leveraging best in class stuff from say Google, the data robots, whatever, then, you know, you should really, really use it. And it requires a mindset shift to be able to start from there. Uh, not very appealing to the kind of data scientists who feels that the value is in, you know, writing everything from scratch, but for a head of data science whose job is to, generate value for the business and also keep the team inspired. You have to play balancing act in there, how you pick these things. But then data prep, now that, <clears throat> the rise of the, the rise of the analytic engineer is one to watch. Like, you know, a lot of time is spent in preparing this, these data sets for, uh, for analysis. And sometimes even in, in analytics scenes claim that 80% of their time is spent in data prep claim. Now, Tools of you know best practice have been created right now, like with the rise of things like DBT, the modern data stack, data meshes, all of those sort of things, where you can conceivably create. It's basically it's basically taking what we were doing in the past and called data silos, and actually said, you know what, there's a reason those silos were created, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out a way to adopt that and stop trying to say, oh no, everything must be centralized. And just you know, you know, allow it to happen, but with best practices in there. So I don't think it's been nailed in practice. I just certainly haven't seen it, you know, being done properly yet in my or. But it's something that I believe if you get that right and you're able to create these data assets that are now available for analytics, for for insights, for dashboarding, for machine learning, whatever, then you you, you you're going to shrink that time and like so speed to insight increases 
you know, the, the variety of data that goes into your machine learning models increases because suddenly you're able to, you know, access data sets created by a risk team or by the dealing team or whatever. So I think that that trend is one that is like, you know, is one that is exciting to watch that will completely kind of um, take us, give us a step change in the way we do, we carry our data science. Um, those are the two big, I'm not going to go into the sort of like, you know, the, the big fancy AI things that are coming up, like your, your, your generative AI, like chat GPT and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a podcast in 2023 without mentioning those things. Um, <laughs> I think, <clears throat> like understand, for me, the risk inherent in just allowing anyone in an organization to access these things, you know, open AI is, Get access to lots of priv like privileged information right now in, in the boom and access without even <laughs> without even asking for it. So I think companies need to be careful uh, as to how they allow their employees access these things and and you know and put some controls in place uh, before they set up let out all their trade secrets. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it, it wouldn't be a podcast talking about trends in uh, in data science and AI, I guess, unless ChatGPT was checked in there somewhere. <laughs> but no, I, I totally agree. I think the <clears throat> yeah, the AutoML piece it kind of echoes a little bit of you know, there's always that sort of reticence or reluctance a little bit to go with the you know the kind of black box sort of prepackaged platform, and I think there's still that kind of yeah with ChatGPT at the moment that that sort of. Uh, yeah, how should we say lack lack of trust around it, but um, but yeah, it's certainly you know been a watershed moment around the uh, the generative AI side, hasn't it? It'll be interesting to see how that kind of does develop. Microsoft certainly seems to be very uh, very interested with their kind of latest contracts that they've written up with, but uh, but no, I, I totally agree around the um, you know the, the analytics stuff as well. So I think there's some really interesting trends to to keep an eye on. Um, yeah, fantastic. Well, Akin, I've really, really enjoyed the chat. I think it's been a, a really insightful um, uh, conversation. And, uh, yeah, I can certainly see how you've achieved what you've achieved at, uh, at IG and, you know, why, why you've been so successful. And uh, I'm sure yeah, many, many uh, great things to come in future. <clears throat> and I always like to end, end podcasts uh, with uh, an idea I stole from... Um, a guy called Rich Reed who wrote a book called If I Could Tell You One Thing where he went around to loads of famous people and asked for their one favourite piece of advice uh, to kind of share with their their fellow humankind. And so, yeah, I'd like to ask you the same question if I may. Have you got a, a particular you know, one takeaway, your favourite piece of advice maybe you've ever received that uh, you'd like to share? Oh, that's tough. Like I came to this podcast thinking, you know, with that because I heard that somewhere else in Asana like but just stick to I'll stick to one just because it's the thing that comes to the top of my mind not that you know if I if I slept on this I may have another answer tomorrow but <laughs> but uh, like uh, an old sort of like mentor of mine kind of told me that you know when you start up in a role like you know you should make yourself indispensable uh but in order to be promoted uh, you had a need to make yourself dispensable. Now, um, that's that kind of stuck with me because what it allows you to do, what it allows me to do consciously is to to empower people mm. and you know to solve bigger problems. So the term promoter is not necessarily a you know it's not necessarily a sort of like this rise in careers to be able to kind of do the things that 
you want to do or, you know, or grow as an individual. So in order to grow as an individual, you kind of need to give up something. And so I, you know, I, I sit in coming and since, since getting that advice 2018, I haven't written a line of code at work. I still do my Coursera stuff at home and build, mm-hmm. put things in there, but I'm now able to focus on, you know, bigger problems like how are we structuring the organization of data science actually about how do you like get the best out of your people, things that nobody else needs to worry about. Uh, and then, you know, getting the best out of the people that, that work for me and allowing them to kind of, you know, also, also achieve that growth. Mm. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's a great piece of advice because, uh, you know, I think you carry that kind of mindset, you know, you can tell why you've been such a successful data leader because, you know, that, that kind of mindset empowers you to, you know, allows you to empower the people to kind of solve problems without your ongoing input, but still infers, you know, a level of, like say, aspiration to go and achieve bigger, you know, bigger things and solve bigger problems uh, further up. And, you know, certainly as a leader, it's very easy sometimes, isn't it, to get stuck in the weeds and, you know, do do for people rather than you know empowering them to actually find the solution. But if you if you ever really want to kind of go on and achieve, you, you have to make sure that every every level that you're you're kind of leaving to its own devices is fully ready for that challenge. And you know that's that's what enables you to like say do yourself out of a job to go and take the next the next bigger challenge that comes along. So uh, yeah, I love that. I think that's a really great great piece of advice. Uh, fantastic. Well, Akin, really really great to speak with you. Thanks again for coming on being a, being a great guest and uh yeah I, I will keep my eyes very closely on uh on, on your uh, your future progress at, at ig and uh and i'm sure your next uh all your other accolades in your uh in your sporting world as well with your your, your <laughs> and, uh, running so i look forward to your next uh, half marathon efforts when that comes through um but yeah thanks again for uh for taking part and uh i look forward to catching up with you soon no, it's been an absolute pleasure, Guy. Thanks for taking the time and thanks for like giving the space to talk about all these things. Great questions. Um, happy to sort of uh, do this again sometime. Yeah, man. Thank yeah, you. that sounds great. Let's do it. Cool. Bye for now. See you.